After an aerial firefighter dies, he becomes a spirit and has a chance to inspire a young pilot and say goodbye to his grieving girlfriend. Special guest Courtney Noah joins us to discuss Jar Jar Binks trivia, a big choo-choo plane, and the Dawson's Creek scene that lives rent-free in James's head. Then we find out if always stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and happy Valentine's Day. My name is Alan Noah, and I am here with my two Valentines, my wife, Courtney Noah. Hello. And my, my James, my James. Aww. <laughs> I'll be your James this Valentine's Day. Thank you. That's and, very sweet. And I hope that everyone has their own James this Valentine's Day. I don't. I want you to just be my James, and I don't want anyone else to have any other James that would be a James brief equivalent. Now I'm getting a little worried here. <laughs> okay, may you have your own metaphorical, but distinctly different from James brief this Valentine's Day. Sure. Well, welcome back to the show, Courtney. Thank you. It's great to be here. I mean, we're in our house, but still... Yeah, well, actually participating. Usually I just hear loud voices from down in our basement. <laughs> this is true. This is fair. So now you get to be one of the loud voices. Yes, and hopefully not wake up our kids. They're asleep. It's fine. Um, I'm glad that you're back for another Valentine's Day episode. I have to ask you out of the gate why you wanted to talk about Always, because I had in my head a bunch of movies that you were definitely going to pick and this wasn't on my radar at all. But then you mentioned like Richard Dreyfus as a leading man kind of a thing. Yeah, I feel like Richard Dreyfus was very popular in the 80s and a lot of like romantic comedies. And so when I think of him, I think of like these 80s movies that I remember too, of which he was with Holly Hunter What's for one? one always and then the other um once around so I, I think of them as like a romantic couple movie couple a little bit um the third one actually with richard dreyfus that i was debating about was moon over parador but um kind of looking at some reviews i was like oh always actually looks like it has the best so let's Let's go with that, although we'll, we'll see if it, it pans out for us in our reviews. Okay, all right. Yeah, we watched it together, and I wanted to ask you so many questions, and I didn't because I was saving everything for this. But, James, you said you hadn't seen Always, right? No, this is one of the few uh, Spielberg films from his older uh, library. There's a few from uh, recent years I have uh, yet to catch up on, but this is one from the old uh, library that I had yet to see. And uh, it was, un you know, I'd always get around to it. It's not the kind of film, especially a Spielberg film, that I would have just kind of put on on, on streaming. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad I got to watch this film. And I guess also just specifically about Richard Dreyfuss, uh, he worked with Spielberg on Close Encounters of the Third Kind and in Jaws. I think this was the third and final time the two of them worked together. I'm not positive about that. But I never saw him in that way, like you did, Courtney, of, of him as a leading man. I think of him in What About Bob, where he's kind of the annoyed, angry dad. You know, I don't see him as a romantic leading guy. But then I also wondered if that was kind of the point in this movie, that he's more of like an everyman kind of a thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and he has, you know, like some comedic elements to him. I mean, definitely he's a daredevil also and risk taker. Which also doesn't seem like Richard Dreyfus to me. I guess. I don't I don't know if I know who Richard Davis is. I, I don't think I've ever seen Mr. Holland's opus, but I, I guess I just picture him as more of like a serious person, not as a romantic guy, not as an action guy, not as a daredevil-y type guy. 
Well, then you should really watch Moon Over Parador because he's like definitely probably outside of the typical Richard Dreyfus character that I, th- I think you're thinking. Okay. If you want to come back to do that some other time, sure. Oh, we'll see how this one goes. <laughs> okay. All right. I mean, he was also in uh, comedies like Stakeout. I don't know if maybe oh, yeah. he's in. Yeah. I've never seen that film. I don't know whether he was the serious guy or the comedic guy, but I, I'm pretty sure that was in the 80s, that kind of a buddy cop or some kind of, uh, you know, it's some kind of comedy film like that. Okay. Um, it's kind of a shame he didn't do more comedy. I, I, I uh, kind of wish he did. The, the movie you're Moon talking about, Courtney? Moon Over Parador is definitely, like, yeah, he, he impersonates a dictator. So it's like all... Great, because I could see it. I could see him being funny because he's, uh, he's a great actor and that'll be on the list for, at some point. Sure, 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 sure. But James, why don't you tell our listeners what Always is about in case they haven't seen this movie? All right, so Always is a movie about Peter Sandich. Uh, he's a daredevil aerial firefighter. His girlfriend, Dorinda, is worried that Pete will die in his line of work. And her premonition proves true when Pete dies in an explosion after saving his best friend, Al. Aw. I would blow up my plane for you, Al. Thank you. <laughs> See, this is why you're my other Valentine. Aw. <laughs> awesome. Following uh, Pete's death, Pete becomes a spirit tasked with providing inspiration to another pilot, Ted. Pete helps Ted become a better pilot, but soon Ted falls for Dorinda, who is struggling to get over Pete's death herself. Pete is also having a hard time letting go of Dorinda, even though he knows he can no longer be with her. During a dangerous forest fire, Dorinda steals a plane, determined not to let another man she cares about die. Pete helps Dorinda on her mission, and then says goodbye, allowing both of them to move on. So this is a sad Valentine's Day movie. Yeah, definitely that bittersweet element to it. I mean, you see the you see the romance, but yeah, doesn't end so well. Right, right. So this movie came out in 1989. How did it do at the box office? I have no idea. I have no memory of this as a kid. It, it opened on uh, December 22nd, 1989. It opened at number five with only $3 million. And it wound up kind of limping to $43 million. Yeah, so this film didn't really do that well for Spielberg. Have you ever heard of this film, Al? I think I'd heard of it, but I don't really think it registered in my brain. So I'd heard of this actually from exactly one place. Uh, And I'll admit it, this was back freshman year. I was watching Dawson's Creek. I I watched the first season, then got bored of it. Freshman year of high school or college? No, this was college. Okay. Um, And I was watching Dawson's Creek and the the main character, Dawson Leary, he wants to be a a filmmaker and he's obsessed with Spielberg. And his room is adorned with Spielberg posters. And you see Jaws and uh, Close Encounters and Indiana Jones. And and then he opens his closet. And on the inner part of the doors of his closet are two posters, 1941 and Always, which are... Two of the worst uh, <laughs> Spielberg I mean, movies, I think, from right, what well, I've the, read. The less regarded <laughs> ones of his. And I didn't know either of those films. And I kind of got the impression, I guess, rightfully that these are the kind of films that a a Spielberg aficionado is hiding for some reason. I knew that people didn't really talk about it, but it was that one Dawson's Creek uh, scene that kind of stuck with me for years. It's kind of interesting, too, because when I picked the movie, I actually didn't know it was a Steven Spielberg movie until we started watching it. I was like, huh. I just think of it as a Holly Hunter, Richard Dreyfuss movie. Fair, fair. Well, let me ask you, Courtney, because I'm very, very curious to get your opinion on this. In the beginning part of the movie, before Pete dies, basically, Mm -hmm. what do you think about Pete as a partner to uh, Dorinda? As a partner to Dorinda, I think it works. Yeah, I've thought about it. I don't think he would be for everyone, Mm -hmm. clearly, but they have something that just works for them. And so, yeah, I think some of his quirks, like getting her birthday wrong was one of them. Um, But I think she finds that charming and that he's consistent in that way. I think they actually are a perfect match, which actually makes me scratch my head a little bit and who she goes for later on in the movie because I'm like, I just don't see it. Like, I, I, I saw it at least as weird as it was with her and Pete. Okay. What about you, James? What were you thinking? I was told they were in love. I got that they were a good couple. Um, I'm not really sure what my specific criticism of it was, but 
that's my problem. I'll say with the film, some of the the love story, both between uh, uh, Holly Hunter and the two men that that she has love stories with. Just maybe the chemistry, like in in some of those uh, cases, great actors, but just maybe there were scenes missing, maybe an establishment scene. But you know, Holly Hunter's definitely she doesn't even say anything. The scene when she finds out that uh, that his plane's blown up, uh, she's in the radio tower, and John Goodman sees her. You know, without speaking, she can emote this terrible grief, and there just was wasn't something in the script that really made me believe the the loss. Although I do think when they had the conversation when they're in their apartment or house or whatever and and she's saying how much it hurts her every time he goes up and flies and put his, puts his life at risk. I felt like that was kind of meant to be like like pulling it together and showing the relationship, the seriousness, the depth of it. So I, I felt like that was there. It was more light on the, the Ted side that I didn't see. That's all totally fair. And in regards to that scene, that was kind of one of the reasons why I didn't like Pete out of the gate because she is so, so upset about what he does for a living. It's not even that he doesn't give a shit. He seems genuinely, genuinely surprised by this information that she is worried sick all of the time. And earlier uh, he does like kind of a stunt where he comes in when he's lost fuel. Is he going to die? And then eh, he's fine. And he's like, oh, she's going to be mad at me. And it's very lighthearted. And it's like, you should know that you are torturing this woman it's more than he's just very cavalier. Glib. Yeah, yeah he's, he's glib. And he's also just like, oh, really? This bothers you? Like, how has this not come up? And how has he not noticed? The getting the birthday wrong thing, that kind of annoys me because I'm good with dates and I know some people aren't. So whatever, you can let that slide. But he also does like the big romantic gesture of he gives her the dress and he knows that she will love it. And she does. And he pretends that he forgot their song. But then no, haha, he did remember her song. So in certain aspects, he's great. He's amazing. But then she says, well, I'm going to be a pilot, too. And he is a full on dick when he's like, no, absolutely not. I forbid it. And she's like, I'm sorry, you forbid it? He's like, yes, in fact, I do. I forbid you from doing this thing. It's like, what the fuck? And then part of me is like, okay, but maybe maybe that's good for the movie. They have a complicated relationship. It's not a perfect Hollywood fairy tale romance, but I was just kind of going back and forth with what I thought of their couple. And I think it was also compounded by what Al says when he's talking about the two different kinds of loves. And I forget exactly what the analogy is, but it's it's related to fire because the they're flame, firefighters. The one that flames up or the slow burn. And, exactly. Yeah. Right as he said that, I'm like, the alarm bell was going off in my head. I'm like, this is a line that is going to be thematically relevant. Which kind of love is it that they have? Do they have the hot, intense, passionate one that's going to burn out? Or is it an eternal flame. And I think at the end of the movie, you're supposed to believe that it's an eternal flame because even though they say goodbye, they will always love each other and their their love will live always, right? That's the name of the movie. But I couldn't kind of make heads or tails of that. I think he also said something like, um, you know, you put your hand to the ground, still warm. So I think that's it. Like she'll always have like that warm place in her heart for him that will be there always, just like you said. Right. Maybe it's also possible that what they were going for is that their love is both. That it's the intense, passionate one and the one that goes forever. I don't really know if that's right. That seems wrong to me. I feel like it's kind of a binary either or thing. There was something in there. There's some point that I just couldn't get my head around. So then he dies, which wasn't terribly surprising. There was a lot of foreshadowing in the conversation. And then also you kind of said, oh, we're going to watch Always and it's sad. So I was like, okay, well, he's um, probably going to die. Sorry, that away. <laughs> no, it's fine. There, there were a lot of signs that he was going to die. I mean, she's talking about what's going to happen if he dies. And he says, oh, you have to be at my funeral crying. And there were a lot of signs that that was going to happen. But I did find that scene, like when he dies... 
there's a lot of exposition that happens from Hap, the uh, the character played by Audrey Hepburn in her last film role. It's pretty quick. It's like, now you're going to whisper to people, you're a ghost. And he's like, okay, got it. And then all of a sudden the movie changes from this love story to a ghost story. And I felt like that was a pretty abrupt turn. What did you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I don't know, like, what more did we need to know? Did you want, like, some existential, like, <laughs> conversation about what happened to him? I don't know. I don't know. I guess I just felt like he takes being dead also glib. Just like he would. Yeah, yeah exactly. He... I think that's the scary part. Like, okay, I'm dead now. Like, I knew he probably knew it was going to happen as in his role. Yeah. She's, like, giving him a haircut, which... They don't explain at all. But he's like, oh, I'm dead. Oh, keep the sideburns. Like that I thought was kind no, of well, funny. No, well, they explained because they said he needed a haircut before when he was alive. I oh. think there was a comment about having a haircut. Oh, okay. Well, I actually thought that this was the most intriguing part of the film for me. And uh, first of all, seeing Audrey Hepburn, uh, she's literally uh, like an angel on the screen. I mean, she's in all white and it's a beautifully shot thing where it's kind of in a burned out uh, area where I guess the plane wreck was, but where where she is in this afterlife scene. It's this beautiful kind of Eden-like little garden and uh, she just looks magnificent like Audrey Hepburn uh, always was. I really like the, the concept of this film. He sent back as a guardian angel to someone. It's basically saying, you know, there's no such thing as the fairy godmother kind of thing it's just kind of a voice or an intuition in your head that you might not have thought of that's actually us you know she's a pilot at the end uh, he's able to kind of tell her and, and uh, Ted the pilot he's able to kind of just give them thoughts of things they know and just you know you could do it you could do it just calm down and that's that that is something you might say to yourself and uh, it was kind of intriguing thinking yeah maybe that is my grandpa that, that part I found intriguing yeah it's intriguing I guess I just felt like the transition kind of gave me whiplash about how quickly it happens. Well, I'll say uh, there's something very interesting about their deaths. So Al, uh, John Goodman's character, his engine's on fire. Uh, He says, my goose is cooked. And Pete has to do something incredibly daring. You know, he's able to do it except... Uh, you know, as he pulls up, there's a little fire on the uh, wing. And it's very interesting what Pete, uh, Richard Dreyfuss' character does. He looks at the fire and just looks at Al. Yeah, and yeah. he knows in a second. I mean, and Al's uh, wing was on fire for, you know, 30 seconds. That's a different kind of fire, I guess. But this guy knew in a second, oh, fuck. It's two seconds away. There's no bailing out. There's no anything. And it blows up. So uh, when he gets to the afterlife, Al, he's not like, oh, I must have blacked out and something happened. So that's why he's not surprised he's dead. Yeah, I understand that. It just, the the tone of the movie then changed. And then after Pete is this spirit, he is, you know, assigned to Ted and he's going to help him out. The very first thing he does is... He fucks with Al and tells uh, Ted to dump the the fire spray, whatever it is. Retardant, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, on Al because he thinks it'll be funny to see Al covered in the, the red goopy stuff. And, you know, it's kind of funny, but he's ruining Ted's chances of becoming a pilot. That also well, that kind of speaks to the, his nature too, right? You're yeah. saying he's kind of kind of a jerk. A yeah, little bit. yeah, like that's like a that's like a shitty thing to do. Like <laughs> he's here as a guardian angel or whatever you want to call it, but he's he's like not doing the job that he said. Right, right. To the do. very first thing he does with this unbelievable, awesome, supernatural power is pull a prank on his old buddy Al and cover him in red goop without any thought of the consequences to Ted, the guy whose life he's supposed to be helping. So it was another example of a shitty thing that this guy was doing. It's in character with him. He is a little bit of a jerk. He needs a little guidance. And these are not guardian angels who are perfect. Right. And and Hap says that later, that you're a good person. That's why you're an uh, inspiration, a spiritus, I think is what it's called. Uh, something like that. But yeah, so he's not a bad person. He just kind of has to, to figure it out. Then it's this this turn where Ted 
is in love with Dorinda. And he saw her earlier and he didn't dance with her. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about the dance scene. Yeah, how fucking that. weird is that? Yeah, we're going backwards. It Dorinda- was almost like a musical. And I don't remember this at all, having watched the movie before. I was like, wait, what is happening here? It seems so outside of the drama that it's supposed to be. It it felt like we, we moved into like, a, I don't know, like a 1950s musical. Right. I don't know. Right. With, with like all the guys lining up around the girl and like, like, when's my turn to dance with her? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's weird, right? Like Dorinda is Pete's girl and everyone knows that. And Al is Pete's best friend. So if Al wanted to dance with Dorinda a little bit, yeah, sure, go dance with her. We're all friends. Who gives a shit? But when every other guy there is like, ooh, I want to dance with her. She looks really hot in that white dress. And he's like, okay, but just wash your hands first. I'll hold your towels. Yeah. That's really really fucking weird and bizarre and to your point about it seeming like something from the 50s this movie is a remake of a movie i think from the 40s or 50s or something uh a man named joe a guy named joe a guy named joe there you go so maybe that's where that scene comes from yeah i was wondering if there's a similar scene that they were trying to i mean you got to remember this is steven spielberg he is he grew up obsessed with the cinema so he's actually obsessed with this movie right apparently uh, i read that he and dreyfus talked about the film a lot during the filming of jaws right and it was always spielberg's dream to remake that film so it's a film you know none of us have ever heard of probably most people in the 80s uh, would have never heard of but a boy growing up in the 60s obsessed with cinema would have heard of this film right I wonder if that scene is in uh, a guy named Joe and yeah maybe it didn't feel weird then I mean I would think that would still be weird in the 40s it probably worked in, in that type of movie back then fine but even still, so so there's this backstory with Ted because Ted didn't get to dance with her and he really wanted to. And then he is obsessed with her and he's in love with her. So then there's this other love story. And again, I'm trying to put my finger on it. Okay, is this also an eternal flame? Is this more of like a passionate romance thing? And I couldn't quite figure out what this relationship was supposed to be because... Not for nothing, if Dorinda's last love just died and she's still mourning him, the odds of the next guy that she dates being the next great love of her life, I guess it's possible the odds seem slim, though, right? Rebound. Exactly. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but just if this is the rebound guy, fine. But why is he so singularly focused on her? He's really obsessed with her. She seems to care for him, maybe? I mean, if she was so heartbroken about uh, her former love, this uh, aerial firefighter pilot, and then finally, a year later, she finally starts moving on, six months later, whatever, and it's like... Her friends might say, you're going for another Pete. Uh, I do find the Ted romance a little bit uh, not as believable. Well, I mean, you were kind of saying that earlier. He's so different from Richard Dreyfuss. Yeah, he just seems so, like, blah. I don't know. And especially after she clearly likes the glibness of, of Pete's character, other than, you know, Ted's clearly attractive, right? Right. Like, it's just a physical thing, which... To your point, how could this be like the long-lasting relationship? Right. I think if the movie had maybe just gone more in that direction of this guy is young and handsome and she's just into that from a physical perspective, okay, sure, that makes sense. But it seems like there's more of a connection there. And then when they have their dinner date and she is talking about Pete a lot, he's not an outright asshole about it. He's like, okay, you are clearly still hung up on Pete, but then he still asks her to slow dance and kisses her. It's like, well, clearly the right thing to do at that point is to say, listen, you're still working through your feelings on Pete. That's fine. Let's talk in a couple months. Yeah, but he's obsessed with her, right? Right. You kind of get that sense. Like, everything he's doing is to try to get back to her. Yeah. Then I just felt like there's another... Another guy treating Dorinda like shit. Yeah. And maybe it comes from a place of real actual caring, but it just felt 
shitty to me. Also, what Al does to Dorinda when he confronts her, when he goes to visit her at her new apartment, and at first they're just kind of sitting there watching Saturday Night Live, uh, Dan Aykroyd doing his Julia Child impression, which, I don't know, from a test of time perspective, I wrote that down. But, like, they're, they're chatting, and then all of a sudden he starts screaming at her for not living her life, and he grabs her suitcase and starts throwing her her clothes in the suitcase. I think what Spielberg was going for was like tough love kind of a thing, but that felt really, really aggressive to this woman who's just bawling because her boyfriend died and she's trying to move on and maybe she's not doing a great job and maybe Al can help her, but by screaming at her and like forcing her to move to Colorado, that doesn't seem like the most productive way to to do that. I don't know. I think it was tough love. I, I I was okay with how he approached that. Okay, that wasn't too tough of tough love. No, I think they were they were really close. What I didn't quite understand is it seemed like he didn't know where she went after that period. I'm like, you guys didn't keep in touch. Like, right. You were that close, and then you kind of like drifted apart. Yeah, that's true. Because it's it's been six months a year. Yes, not that it, long. Right. Yeah. There's no Facebook, but even still, you could exchange landline phone numbers and call every couple yeah. of weeks. Yeah, that is a good point. I was also just, uh, along those lines, very confused about the timeline. And Hap says something about, oh, time is different for you now. But I was having a tough time trying to track down how long has it been since Pete died, you know, at different points in the movie. I I was confused by that. It was six months uh, when he first starts. It probably takes place over a course of a year. Yeah, but it's just, it's not clear, like, when there's time jumps. Because there's a point when Ted is not that great of a pilot and then Pete's whispering in his ear and he gets better and then they do call on Ted when there's a big forest fire that has to be some months later how many months I, I, yeah, I they just kind of transition to like oh now he's a, a forest fire pilot right yeah. Yeah. What you're saying is this movie needed a montage. Honestly, it probably <laughs> did. I think that would have helped. Or even just like text on screen, of, you know, six or months voice later. Over. No, we know no, how no, much no. loves voiceover. No voiceover <laughs> needed. Or honestly, even be like, hey, it's been a year since he died. And so therefore you need to blah, blah, blah. You work it into conversation. Maybe it's a little clunky dialogue, but that I think Although they helped. did say that. She said it was a year when they were having dinner. You're right, you're right. But then, yeah, I guess I was just like, oh, now it's been a year. Maybe maybe the montage would have helped kind of bridge the I think the, the transition from when they're in Colorado to when they go back to, where were they? Like Pacific Northwest. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere up there. Yeah, I, and I was also a little bit confused about that, about where they were at different points because, yeah, then they're just all of a sudden back at the location from the beginning of the movie. But it's like, wait, when did they get there? Did they say we're going there? And what was Al's job, right? I thought Al yeah. like worked for like the training school, but then all of a sudden now he's back fighting fires. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> that was the, a little weird. Yeah, there was definitely some of that like nitty gritty connective tissue that I was just... You just had to overlook. Yeah, I guess. And this is just me overanalyzing. That's my thing. But I was just like, it, it takes me out of the movie. You know, when I have to think, wait, where are they? When are they? What's happening? Audrey Hepburn's character says at one point, she goes, time is very different here. Einstein had no idea or something like that. Although uh, it sounds like Einstein was perfectly correct because Einstein does say it's all relative and like the closer speed of light, time goes, slows down. So I think actually probably Einstein would probably totally understand it. I'm glad he would. Uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but um, there was one thing that totally flew over my head. There was a scene when they're talking about uh, a John Wayne impression. Oh, no, yeah. no, no, no. You mean Henry Fonda. And I was just like, I have no sure. idea yeah, who right. these people are. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure it was something really understood in 1989. I'll bet there is a big difference between Henry Fonda and John Wayne. I'm sure there is. But I have no idea. Yeah. Apparently, that was a thing that just kind of happened while they were filming that uh, the actor who plays... Ted, his name's Brad Johnson, he was doing that impression and Holly Hunter didn't know who it was and Spielberg thought that that was really, really funny so he wrote it in and yeah, it doesn't really translate, especially, uh, you know, 35 years later. Right. Uh, there's even a part in the beginning uh, when they're establishing that uh, he's a real daredevil. So what do they do? It's the perfect word to tell the audience what kind of person this guy is. Uh, one of the guys at the radio tower says, you've got that evil Knievel voice in you. Mm-hmm. He was a daredevil in like the 70s, I think. Yeah. 
I want to ask you, Courtney, about the music because you clearly liked uh, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes uh, when that started playing. Yeah, and I think that's what I connect this movie with when I was thinking of Always. I'm like, oh, it has that great song and it's like misty with the smoke and the the fires that they're fighting. Yeah, definitely. That's a great part of this movie. Yes, and then when Ted is asking uh, her to dance, he plays Crazy Love by Van Morrison. Oh, that's true. Yes. Yeah, another great one. And, well, the score is by John Williams. Although I don't know there are, like, memorable, like, musical sequences in there, other than, like, the well-known popular songs. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, not at all surprising that it was a nice John Williams score, but if you paid me a million dollars i couldn't hum it right now yeah me neither yeah but i know that you love van morrison and yeah and i like a good movie that has a song or soundtrack connected to it oftentimes those are some of the movies i've been picking oh yeah moulin rouge nine to five um what's the julia roberts one i'm blanking on it right now that we did oh my best friend's uh, my wedding. best friend's wedding yeah yeah, yeah. sleepless in seattle has a great yeah yeah you only pick films with uh notable soundtracks music plays a big part in how much i like a movie that's honestly. fair i mean were there any memorable songs in can't buy me love well that song i mean other, <laughs> yeah. other than the obvious fair fair point so moving on to the end of the movie it's a little predictable in the sense that Pete is able to say goodbye to Dorinda and allows her to move on with her life. I did really, really like the turn, though, where Dorinda gets in the plane. I was expecting it was going to be a replay of the beginning of the movie where Ted was going to jump in the plane and then Dorinda was going to have to once again worry. Sit, yeah, yeah worry sit idly by but Pete was gonna help save Ted yeah right that exactly that that's what I was thinking and I like the fact that Dorinda jumps in the plane and not only does she decide to take action but it is her and her alone Pete is not whispering in her ear Al's not telling her to do it this is 100% her decision and I really really like that I thought that was a a nice twist that I didn't see coming I mean, she's really a, a very strong character. Like, she's been through a lot, right? She thrives in a kind of sea of, of very macho guys, you know, and has been able to really establish her autonomy and, like, respect amongst them. Yeah, so yeah, she, yeah. she is an impressive character. I don't know if we've given her her, her due. We talked a lot about Pete and uh, yeah. you know, how glib he was. He's maybe not the best character. Maybe that's why my, like, kind of memory of this movie is, like, the connection with her. She is a great character. She is, I think, really, though, at the end. I feel like the entire first, I don't know, 80% of the movie or so, she is just, like, getting yelled at by the men around her. Whether it's Pete or Ghost Pete or Al, not really Ted, well, maybe I, that's Ted, the arc, though, right? They have to show her, like, when she's changing and, and making decisions for herself, whether it's love or, you know, kind of going above and beyond and becoming that pilot, too, that he said she couldn't be. That's true. Although, while Pete is whispering in her ear in the cockpit, he's telling her, you're not good enough. I'll fix it for you. And he's giving her very, very specific (laughs) instructions. It's not like you were saying earlier, James, of like, you can do it. I believe in you. You know what to do. He's like, no, no, you need to hold this lever like this and push this button. And she releases the gloop too early. And then the firefighter who's on the ground is like, hey, it dissipates below 500 yards. He's kind of like mansplaining it to her. And she's like, oh, I don't know. I'm just a girl. Tee hee hee mansplaining i mean he's explaining you have to be lower or we're going to die and he happens to be a man telling her that she's incorrect about it but it's not condescending in any way it's not little girl you don't understand big choo-choo plane need no he's saying it's a big choo-choo plane i don't know but uh, well he is about to die so he's about maybe, to die he's saying he's you need to do it below 500 feet she knows these things that, right. that's the thing she knows how to do it she did it incorrect the first time, but it's like, no, you can do it. Dorinda can do it. 
and uh, she just needed one more shot. Because also, the firefighter, we need that as the audience. You could say mansplaining, whatever, but the audience, I don't know why that didn't work. She released the, the wet stuff above the fire. Great, good job. Oh, it doesn't work. It turns to mist if it's that high. And you that's why it's so dangerous, too, right? That kind of explained to yeah. us. Oh, they can't just drop it from above the flames. They have to like go in there in the flames to. Make you it need work. someone to explain. Yeah. I, I don't know. There's something about that line just rubbed me the wrong way. Um, the scene where he, you know, tells her everything that he wanted to say, and you know, he he admits to the fact that he was a glib asshole. Not who in never so many said words. I love you, right? Like that was a big right part of the earlier part of the movie that he's trying to yell to her, I love you. And it was like right before he died and she didn't hear him. And I think you can make the argument that she knew that he loved her, but that is definitely one of, or possibly the central theme or message or moral or whatever of the movie, which is life is short. Tell the people. Yes. When you love somebody, you tell them that you love them because you never know what can happen tomorrow. And I get that. And I think that that's a that's a sweet sentiment. And the the way it's shot where he's kind of behind her in the plane. Yeah, I love just watching her eyes. Like, does she hear him? How is she hearing him? Like, there's a lot I think you can kind of interpret on your own. Yeah, yeah. I felt like that was pretty powerful. And then when she crashes into the water and then he has to like take her hand and pull her out, that to me felt like an extra ending that they didn't necessarily need. But I don't know. I think it was like, does she have the courage to go on? And maybe that's the slow burn, right? Like it's the smoldering love. Is it so devastating? You know, obviously she was considering killing herself and just... Right, just staying Staying there, drowning. But he's kind of also releasing the the love. I think it reminds me of the 1990 film Ghost. Uh, we'll review it, I'm sure, at some sure. point. Uh, there's a character that dies and kind of guides in a different sort of way, guides a way to help his former love. And at the very end, the, the, the widow, she gets to see him for a moment before he like goes off into the afterlife. Very, very similar to this film. It gives her a little bit to know that this really was Pete. And uh, you have to do that. I think that's what it's for. It's it's for yeah. the thematic uh, purpose that uh, just a no for sure. I get it. I just felt like it was, to me, like an extra beat. I think it's very interesting that, Courtney, you didn't know that this was a Spielberg film. Mm-hmm. Because I would almost say it's almost like a Spielbergy ending to have Richard Dreyfus kind of appear for a moment and say, goodbye, my love. Yeah, and, uh, there are yeah. some elements. Yeah, I can see that. But- or so, similar in nature to him. Is there another movie you're thinking of where something similar happened? I think that this film, having seen this now in 2024, uh, being a big fan of Steven Spielberg, if I didn't know, like Courtney, if I didn't know that this was uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, I would honestly say, and my first take on this film was, this is a real kind of, someone's trying to make a Spielberg film. I don't think they quite did it. And I would almost jokingly say, I don't think they'd do it quite as well as Spielberg would have done it. Uh, There's just something missing here. There's a lot of Spielberg-y things, like fantastic action parts. I I really think that the aerial scenes, uh, the planes are pretty cool. Uh, That's just something, it's a weird thing I've never seen before. Uh, Aerial firefighters, it's it's a pretty fascinating uh, thing that allows for the adventure and the the anxiety. It's kind of a little, and I say this word not in a bad way, a little bit of the Spielberg schmaltziness of like, it's a love story and it's going to work out well in the end. Not necessarily he's going to come back to life, but just, it's the happy happier ending here but to me there were just some parts that didn't all fit together and this isn't an interesting part in Spielberg's filmography it's right after uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in 1989 always the follow up to that film and the follow up to this one next is going to be Hook you know, and it is seen in one of those films of it's Spielberg-y but something doesn't quite 
fit the magic that uh, he always gets. And then after that, his follow-up to that is going to be the one-two punch of Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. And following that up with things like Saving Private Ryan a couple years later. I don't think he was established as, this is a Spielberg film yet. I think this is probably advertised, maybe from director Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, the director of Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I still think he wasn't quite yet so established yet. Locked in as a major. Right. As in, like, if if he had made this film in uh, 2005, I feel like he would have the power that he probably wouldn't necessarily be able to say the Universal back then and say, I'll do this, but I need some more time on the script or... Uh, maybe this casting isn't working and oh shit we gotta redo like all these scenes because this guy's not working with the chemistry that's my criticism here it, it, it's a finely made film it feels uh, Spielbergian but it's just not a great Steven Spielberg film right well Courtney let me ask you if you think that the movie stands a test of time I'm really sad to say that I don't think it does I think in my head remembering it I built it up to be this great romantic yeah bittersweet love story and yeah I think just all the glib parts and and Ted's character really bothered me a lot I think I just couldn't see him being the replacement yeah and some of the parts just didn't fit together um you know we were talking about different things they reference that didn't bother me as much as I, I think just some of the approaches of making the movie, you know, and maybe Steven Spielberg was just still finding his way, if that's how we want to say he wasn't as established as he is today. Yeah. Um, could have been tighter. Yeah, I, I kind of felt like it was very slow in some parts and then other parts happened very quickly and it was paced weirdly. Yeah. I mean, I do love the cast, though. I still, <laughs> despite my feelings about the movie, will always love Holly Hunter. Um, Richard Dreyfuss, maybe not his best film, but still love him. And of course, John Goodman. Like, he was actually probably, well, no, Holly Hunter's still my, my favorite in the movie, but okay. followed by John Goodman. Okay. I was kind of hoping you were going to say that Al was your favorite. Uh, of course I love him, but Holly Hunter, I don't know. She's just such a strong character and consistently good at the movies she's in. So, so if anyone was carrying the movie, I think it was her. Right. Totally fair. All right. James, what do you think? I think it's a a finely made film in many ways. Uh, The cinematography uh, was was made by this guy, uh, Michael or Mikhail Solomon. He wound up being the DP, director of photography, on a film that we'll review. I've never seen it before, but a movie called Backdraft. Uh, That's a famous fire film. That's a good one. Yeah, and I mean... I think. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe my judgment. Maybe. Yeah, it was. (laughs) Regardless of my opinion on this film always, uh, if I was making uh, Backdraft in 1991, I would say, who do I want to shoot this film? Have you seen this film always? Have you seen those fire scenes and the firefighters and the sense of danger around them? Get that guy. And uh, I love the aerial scenes. Holly Hunter's great in this film, but I also think John Goodman is one of those guys that I'm always surprised by John Goodman because I knew him growing up as the guy from Roseanne. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right, you know, I generally love, you know, sitcom dads. He just always just again and again, like, holy shit. Reinvents himself. Well, not just reinvents himself, but he's like, he's not just, you know, Bob Saget, rest in peace. Great, a funny guy. He wasn't like, uh, his acting will move you to tears. Like, John Goodman goes everything from, uh, you know, Argo and uh, this movie, and uh, he's in every one of the, you know, the Cohen films. Like, mm-hmm. this guy's an unbelievable actor. And, Righteous Gemstones, actually. That's what I kept thinking yeah, of, which is the yeah. most recent thing that we've seen him in. Sure. I love that, uh, that he's in this. And I also love that Holly Hunter's in this because they're probably relatively unknowns. And I- I'm just fascinated at the caliber of acting that's in it. Of course, you know, Richard Dreyfuss and Audrey Hepburn are they're known. Beyond, yeah. They're Great. fantastic. This guy, Brad Johnson, uh, who plays Ted, I don't think Brad Johnson had a chance, uh, you know, being the love story to, uh, with Holly Hunter, or maybe it was something in the script, but it just didn't work for me. I think Dawson Leary was right, basically. So for me, it does not stand the test of time. What do you think, Al? Yeah, I I agree with you guys. I I don't think it stands the test of time. And I think it's a shame because I think that 
a lot of the themes of the movie really do stand the test of time about saying I love you, being a good partner and listening to the person that you love and being there for them and getting over someone who's passed away and how difficult that is. And I really like this idea of the spirits whispering in your ear. I think that's really nice and sweet and I I like to believe that that's true. But yeah, I I agree with you that the execution in this movie is just not there. And it does feel like either Spielberg was rushed or he didn't know what he was doing or he was paying too much uh, homage to the original movie where maybe... And maybe they're trying to force something. I don't know. I feel like the script is where like a lot of the mistakes are made. And I think that while we're all saying that Spielberg would get better. And I think that's just very, very obviously true. Having seen The Fablemans, which I think is the most recent movie he's done (laughs) that we've seen, I really didn't care for that one. So he's not infallible even today, yeah. you know, he, yeah. there, there are there are misdemeanors. <laughs> yeah, flops. And, and I and although I, everyone that did get good room. Yeah, views. people people really liked uh, Fablemans. It won zero Oscars. I think it was nominated for a couple, but it won nothing. Mm. Whatever. I feel like this movie is chock full of really interesting ideas, and it's very very poorly executed. I agree with you about John Goodman. He's wonderful. Brad Johnson, I was looking him up. He died because of COVID-19. I think 2020 or 2021, which is a a very sad end to his story, obviously. But yeah, I don't think he's great in the movie. I think that Richard Dreyfuss is miscast. Holly Hunter is beautiful. But god damn, that fucking mullet. Are you kidding me? Like, (laughs) that hairstyle is awesome. Awful. And it's very, very easy to make fun of mullets as just a stupid fucking haircut. They always were and they still are. And Holly Hunter's face is framed so weird by that mullet. I'm like, this is a beautiful woman that just looks strange with that fucking haircut. But how would we know it was maybe her at that bar scene? Without yeah. the, the, you know, the glance from behind. Like, oh, is it her? Because there's someone else who has a... Who has a mullet. <laughs> I thought that was Holly Hunter in that scene. I, I was, know. You were like, oh, well, didn't he see her? I was like, no, it's just someone with the same mullet. I just don't understand the whole mullet thing. Um, also, there's way too much fucking whistling in this movie. That's me and my misophonia. I hate it. And it's uh, just horrifically grating and worse than nails on a chalkboard for me. Also, I think really just the way that Dorinda is treated by the the male characters. I I don't really like that. Also, the name Dorinda is kind of... The name was interesting. Yeah, I was like, is anyone named Dorinda? (laughs) Yeah, uh, again, maybe... Is that a name? (laughs) Maybe that's from the 1940s version, and in the 40s that was fine, but it, it was confusing. Also, by the way, I didn't really get at the beginning of the movie... If they were married or boyfriend girlfriend, did did they say that? Did I miss the word girlfriend or something in that in there? He says you're my gal a couple times. I didn't get the sense they were married, but they were just kind of like long term. I think they would have said it's been a year since your husband died. I think they yeah. would have said yeah. something like that. It's it's since Pete died. I know that they weren't married, but just in the beginning of the movie, I was confused about the nature of their relationship. I don't think they live together because I think there's a line about uh, someone calls it my house. Something, oh, yeah. Something. She does say like this is yeah, this is yeah, not so, calling for you at my house. Right, right. So they, they don't they don't live together. That's fine. They can still have a, a close relationship. But I just I was lost. I was confused about details. So, yeah, I, I am in agreement that the movie does not stand the test of time. All right. Then I will wrap this up by asking you one last seemingly unrelated question. Okay. How would Jar Jar Binks say that he is very phonia? Huh? Oh, misophonia. I got it. Okay. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Don't mock my condition, James. I must say that's how Jar Jar Binks said there might be a comedic error. He's just saying that he's sophonia. And you're like, oh, yes, misophonia. And you get an Abbott and Costello who's on first kind of thing going. <laughs> I feel like there's, that's a convoluted setup. 
why is Jar Jar acting like a phony? And then why am I talking to Jar Jar about my hatred of whistling? I, I don't know. Did we just have a Jar Jar Binks joke? What was the joke recently? Oh, uh, you want me to tell that story? You were mad at me about that. Courtney and I went to a trivia night with some friends and they announced the category before they asked the question. And he says, the next category is Star Wars. And I say, I know it. It's Jar Jar Binks. I write Jar Jar Binks down on the answer sheet and then hand it in. The guy hasn't even asked the question yet. And Courtney's jaw drops because we take bar trivia really fucking seriously. And she's like, what are you doing, you idiot? I'm like, it's got to be. It's got to be Jar Jar Binks. He asked the question of this character was portrayed by Ahmed Best. They announced that the answer is Jar Jar Binks. Courtney was very, very impressed, and then I was just not going to say anything, and then someone else said, oh, well, I knew that because I follow you on Instagram, and that was the trivia answer of the week, and that's how I knew that it was Jar Jar Binks, because I follow the guy. I mean, you're stupid not to. He gives you an answer before you even show up, so I knew that that was going to be the answer. And then I lost all faith in him. (laughs) And let me ask you this question, Al. At the time, did you say, hey, Courtney, this guy has a trivia question of the week. He always said it's Jar Jar Binks. No, 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 he played it off like like he just has this trivia intuition. Because you wouldn't usually be that arrogant about it. You you had inside information. 100%. And (laughs) the look on your face when you heard that other girl say that, you were like, you son of a bitch. You let me be impressed by you. I'm like, yeah, I did. Sorry. And I, I could have gotten away and with it. And that's our relationship. There you go. <laughs> I love you. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. See, I say I love you. Yes, you do. I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but I know that you do. And, and I'm the Pete in this relationship. <laughs> I guess so. Maybe. <laughs> um, I also know your birthday, obviously. Yes, you do. Um, well, thank you for coming back on the show, Courtney. Thank you. It's been great. And, you know, come back again for a non-Valentine's Day episode if you want. I'll have to pick one that stands the test of time next time. Okay. I think think Uh, we've been on kind of a a downward streak. Yeah, Can't Buy Me Love, we all said, did not stand the test of time. Uh, And before that was election, which we all liked. Yes. We said it did stand the test of time. All right, we'll, we'll think about it. Come back on anytime because we very often record in our house. So it's pretty convenient. It is. I will certainly come back. Thank okay. you. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Happy Valentine's Day, Courtney. Happy Valentine's Day to you, James. Thanks, boo. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> Aww. And happy Valentine's Day to you, all of our listeners. That's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about The Score, a movie that you picked, James. I have never heard of it. I don't know anything about this movie. It's a heist film. You got Robert De Niro and Marlon Brando in the same scene together. Uh, you know, of course, they famously both portrayed Vito uh, Corleone in uh, Godfather 1 and 2. Right. But uh, this is one of Brando's final film appearances. And uh, yeah, we're going to take a look at it. All right. Sounds good. In the meantime, everyone, you can write to us at Test of Time Pod, Facebook, X, Instagram, Threads. You can send us an email, the Test of Time Podcast at gmail.com, and let us know your thoughts about Always and Spielberg and Dreyfus and Hunter and Mullets and all of these things. And uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.